This is Focal Point for Wednesday, the 31st of March, 2010. Top 10 Internet Controversies of the 21st Century. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the Internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you? Well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. I'm happy. Are you looking forward to April Fool's Day tomorrow? Uh, as always, as always. <laughs> this is your um, this is like the your patron saint's day, really, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to do something stupid tomorrow, but that's just like today. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, so today we 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 have got a topic which we're going to talk about some ten stories that happened on the internet. But before that, there's something we forgot to mention last time, Chris, is that we've now got a new domain name. For a podcast, it's now available at focalpointpodcast.com. That is a blog that's associated with this podcast. And every time we do a podcast episode, we not only publish it to iTunes and to the podcast, but we also post a blog entry there, which has the recording as well as a list of all the websites that we mention during the podcast. Indeed. So update your favorites and your bookmarks to point to focalpointpodcast.com. I don't think we ever talked about how the name came about, Chris. Uh, we workshopped it, didn't we, Gihan? Yeah, we, we had some strange names like Crazy About the Internet and Tools of the Internet. That's right. And the, the focal part of it is because that's your business name, your company name. That's right, focaltechnologies.com. That's right, that's right. So I like to think of it as the, you contributed the name and I make all the good points. <laughs> so therefore it's focalpointpodcast.com. So that's where you can find us. Um, and if you're not already subscribed to the podcast in iTunes or your other favorite podcast reader, I recommend you do that as well. Indeed. Shall we kick off with our uh, topic for the day, Gihan? Yes, yes, and this came about because of an article that I read a couple of months ago, uh, which was titled 15 Biggest Internet Controversies of the Past Decade, and we'll provide a link to that in, uh, in the podcast notes on the blog, um, and they were, they were talking about 15 things that happened in the, in the last 10 years where the internet has played a major role in, in bringing this controversy to light, or the controversy arose because of the internet, and so we've retitled it, so that was about 15 controversies of the past decade, we've re- titled it The Top 10 Internet Controversies of the 21st Century, because we like to be ambitious and say that there's probably not going to be anything bigger than this in the next 90 years. <laughs> um, we've, dropped, we've dropped five, Gihan, that we think are less controversial and won't stand the test of time. <laughs> yes. And also we've taken the ones that we know most about, um, and we've added a little bit since this, this was more than three months ago now, I think, when the blog post first came out, and there have been a few developments since then. So we're going to be talking about the top ten. So why don't you kick it off, Chris? Why don't you start with the first one? Sure, and we've grouped them into, uh, into themes. So the themes are censorship, copyright, privacy, social networking, and the last one we've kind of shoehorned a couple that are a bit different from each other, but I think they're about access to the Internet, free access or illegal access. So kicking off with the censorship topic, uh, the, uh, the topic that I'll talk about next is the Great Firewall of China. And as most people are probably aware, China is perhaps one of the most notorious censors of the Internet uh, going around. And as a consequence, their censorship scheme is, has been labelled the Great Firewall of China. And they... The Chinese government censors a great deal of material, a broad range of material, including stuff that relates to um, things like Falun Gong or the Tiananmen Square incident, anything that uh, can be construed to uh, being inciting um, criticism of the government or breaking, 
breaking their, their Chinese constitution, things that uh, are sexually suggestive or talk about gambling and violence and so on. So there's a broad range of keywords that are censored, as well as entire websites like external websites such as Facebook.com or Twitter or Google.com's search engine. Uh, so it, it's a broad, a broad-ranging and far-reaching firewall that the Chinese have set up. And one of the more troubling aspects of it is, uh, according to my reading, many Chinese citizens um, self-censor what they publish online because they're aware that any material that is construed as uh, breaching the Chinese censorship regime will be taken down. So it has a chilling effect on the citizens' self-expression as well as um, restricting what citizens can read. So it's both self-expression and access to information that uh, is affected by the Chinese government's censorship regime. Um, but it's worth remembering that it's not just the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese government that censors uh, the internet. Many other totalitarian regimes around the world also have uh, severe censorship restrictions on the internet. Um, but for the Australian audience, it's also worth remembering that we do have some limited censorship here already, and the Rudd government is planning to extend this to mandatory censorship. So uh, that's a very controversial subject that we've spoken about in the past, and we'll no doubt have another podcast about in the future as the government's plans to censor the Australian internet uh, materialise. Yeah, and I think the I think the point you made about self-expression and self-censorship, Chris, is, I think is a really valid one. Um, as a much smaller example, I recently published an app in the iTunes store, Chris, so that you can download it to your iPhone, uh, and it initially got accepted, and then Apple changed their rules and they rejected it. And the developer who created the app for me has been working very closely to make to make sure that we can resubmit it. I, I did tell people, you know, face to face, that the app got rejected, and I was pretty upset with Apple for accepting it first, approving it first, and then rejecting it a few weeks later. But I was very careful about where I said that in a public forum because I just don't know what Apple's approval process is, and they may take a, a dim view of people criticizing their their removal of, their, of apps from the App Store for arbitrary reasons. And I've seen other people who've had their apps removed uh, and they're quoted always as anonymous sources because they don't want to put their name to it because they fear that Apple's going to take retribution against them. So that, that self-censorship does happen and even on a very minor thing like that, when you think about things that are really important like what you believe in and uh, whether you believe governments are doing the right thing, it becomes a very big issue. Yeah, I guess that's part of the controversy, isn't it? The most recent development in the whole Great Firewall of China controversy is what happened to Google. They uh, are pulling out of um, operations in China. They've already shuttered their Google.cn search engine, which was the one that they operated within China and that was censored according to the Chinese government's requirements. Um, but in Strangely, in response to uh, a hacking incident, Google has taken this action, and so they're going to cease operations later in April um, entirely, which is uh, the most uh, recent and most uh, another controversial aspect of the, the Great Firewall of China. Yeah, okay. So the second censorship story we're going to talk about is, I think, what was uh, an unintentional piece of censorship. I think so, even though there's some controversy around it. About a year ago, uh, Amazon.com removed certain books from its uh, search engine, or they, they dropped the, the rankings of those books, and they turned out to be gay and lesbian-oriented books. And there were a number of books that were that were affected by that, and then suddenly they all dropped from the, from the Amazon search, or they certainly dropped their rankings. And, of course, that caused an uproar immediately. 
people were outraged by it, and, and rightly so, because there was no reason for them, for Amazon to drop those books from the database. And uh, Amazon came out pretty quickly afterwards and said, sorry, there was a technical error, we made a mistake, and they quickly issued an apology and restored the rankings. But there still seems to be some simmering resentment and even a little bit of suspicion that somebody at Amazon made a policy decision that they were going to um, deliberately remove these books or exclude these books from the database. And I I don't think that's true. I think it was more an accident. But it does show that when you've got a a big site like Amazon and that's visited every day and there are a lot of people using it and they all have these collaborative forums to complain about things, how important it is to get the technology right because even a technical error can really damage your reputation even if only for a short time. Yeah, I guess there was nothing for Amazon to gain from dropping those books from their database, so it's unlikely that uh, there was any policy decision. It was more likely to be a technical error, but uh, they listened very closely to what their customers had to say and responded accordingly. Yeah, and I think that's a lesson, Chris. I think the mistake was made, it was a technical mistake, as you say, apart from ideological reasons, which is very unlikely. There's no reason, there's no benefit for them removing those books, but the, the lesson is, if you make a mistake, acknowledge it, apologize and fix it as soon as possible. Um, and Google did that recently with when they launched their new social network. What was it called? Google Buzz. Yes. They launched that. Uh, there are some privacy concerns about that. And within days, they'd fixed in, uh, within a day, they'd fixed the initial problem. And within days, they'd just backtracked and said, look, we just launched it too early. We should have done it in beta. We didn't realize these problems. And and they said, okay, we made a mistake and we're, go- and we're going to... Take it back to the take it back to the lab until we fix it until we can get it right. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, moving on to the next uh, controversial theme, and that is copyright. And something uh, one of the most uh, controversial aspects of the whole copyright infringement on the internet, or piracy, as it's sometimes referred to, has been file sharing networks. Um, so file sharing networks. Uh, uh, very useful. Gihan and I use them uh, in our day-to-day business, but they're also widely used to share uh, illegally copyrighted material. And as a consequence, uh, the copyright holders associations have been very aggressive in pursuing copyright infringers that use file sharing networks. Now, in the first instance, uh, what happened was that the file sharing networks themselves were targeted. So the most high profile um, example of that was the shutting down of Napster uh, early this century. Uh, So the RIA, the Recording Industry Association of America and the Motion Picture Association of America, sued Napster uh, because a great deal of audio and video material that was copyrighted was being shared on the Napster network. In addition to that, uh, the organisations also sued the file sharers themselves. So those individuals who had made available on these file sharing networks copyrighted materials were sued for damages, and they did so very aggressively. In many cases, it was uh, people who had uh, just shared a few files, uh, sometimes unwittingly perhaps it was suggested maybe uh, the children of uh, the owners of the PCs were responsible, but nonetheless some very uh, high-profile and... um, aggressive lawsuits were filed against these individuals. And another aspect of this was that indexing services, so websites that were devoted to providing links to um, files that were shared on on file-sharing networks were also pursued, regardless of whether they were actually making these files available. They were just pointing to where on file-sharing networks they were available. Uh, They were also uh, have been sued, so 
organisations such as the Pirate Bay and Newsbin uh, were targeted, and sometimes successfully, sometimes not. In Australia, uh, a high-profile case occurred when the Australian Federation Against Copyright Theft sued one of Australia's largest ISPs, IINet, uh, for making, allowing customers to access for free copyrighted material on file-sharing networks. So it was alleged that users of IINet's services were accessing copyrighted material, pirated material, using the IINet ISP, and so therefore it was being facilitated by IINet. In the end, the federal court found in favour of IINet, saying that IINet are not responsible if one of their users uses the system to bring about a copyright infringement, so the responsibility doesn't lie with IINet. They're saying that the law recognises no positive obligation on any person to protect the copyright of another. So that was a closely watched case because I think it was one of the first or most high-profile cases of uh, a copyright holder suing an ISP for facilitating copyright infringement. And I think as we speak, that case is at appeal at the moment, and I'm hoping that the appeal doesn't overturn the decision, but I'm not optimistic about that, Chris. In fact, I'm not optimistic about it in general. I'm quite pessimistic because I think big copyright holders, like the recording industry, the movie industry, big publishers, have a lot of money, they have a lot of lobbying power, and they use it to, I think what they're going to do is change the laws, which then means that the courts who have to apply the laws will have no choice but to prosecute people like IINET. And uh, I think that's the way they're going to work around it because they're finding that if the issues are taken to court, then generally the intermediaries, like the ISPs, are held not responsible, which is the way the law is written at the moment. And I think the sensible way, but I'm not optimistic that that's going to continue in the in the future. So watch this space. The second copyright story that we'll talk about is one that – this is an interesting one because this is about Google Books. So Google is uh, has been criticized uh, for – for indexing copyright material and publishers and authors are both both groups are outraged by this idea that Google is is taking what initially started off being out of print books and books that didn't that weren't explicitly in the public domain but didn't seem to have any copyright holders. So Google's saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna take it over, we're gonna index it and we'll put it into Google Books. And it won't necessarily be that Google then owns the copyright. They'll own the copyright on that copy of course, but other people could do the same thing. But it seems to have filtered out and it seems to be more than that now and again there are these books that the copyright holders do have rights to them and Google is being presumptuous by assuming that they don't so what Google's saying is okay we'll we'll take a copy of this book and if you're the copyright holder and you can and you can prove it then we'll give you back the copy or we'll delete that copy but that, that again seems to be the wrong way around it should be the case that things are automatically seem to be copyright unless there, uh, unless the copyright holder has explicitly given over that copyright. And so that's, that's part of the controversy around this. And Google's argument is, well, there are all these books that we'd like to make available to people, but we can't do that because we can't tra- track down the original copyright holders. Therefore, let's assume that they're out of copyright and unless people tell us otherwise. And at the moment, I think a settlement's been reached where Google provides links that allow people to purchase the the online version, the ebook version of some of these out of print books, or to go to libraries and get them from there. So that only relates to these these copyright orphans, as they're sometimes called, the out of print and out well, of copyright ones. Well, that was my original understanding. Although uh, some of the arguments that I've seen from publishers and authors say that Google's taking their works, and I don't know whether that's people who. 
um, were then who are then going and claiming books back from Google, or whether these are people who are saying, well, the copyright's really clear, but Google's copied my book anyway. All right. Watch this space again, dear Han. It's uh, developing. Um, uh, the case is still under development, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this is something that's going to play out in the next few years, Chris, because I think people's view on copyright is changing. I was in a forum recently where people were, where somebody had posted a link to a piece of software which allows you to download YouTube videos and include them in your presentations. Um, and I pointed out that that's fine and it's easy to do and it's free software and it's easy to then embed it into a PowerPoint presentation, but it's not legal. According to YouTube's terms of use, they don't allow you to use, your video, use the videos in that way. So just because it can be done and just because it can be done easily doesn't mean that it's le- legally allowed. However, there are lots of people who just don't think that way. Yeah. All right, well, sticking with Google and moving on to our next topic area, it's the matter of privacy on the Internet. And with regard to privacy, uh, Google's Street View service has been criticised for breaching privacy in many circumstances. So Street View is the process that is that augments Google Maps. So instead of getting a bird's-eye view of a particular area, if Street View has been enabled in that area, then you can also see images from the street level of surrounding buildings and landmarks. This is a fabulous service, a fabulous piece of technology, and I find it also very useful. Uh, if I'm going somewhere for the first time, then I can use Google Maps to plan the route and then use Street View once I'm at the destination to uh, identify landmarks that I need to look for once I've got to the destination and find out which building I need to head for or what a person's uh, street address or the house at a particular street address looks like. The problem that uh, many people have pointed out is that the, the Street View technology captures not only buildings and landmarks but also people and uh, license plates on cars uh, that could possibly uh, breach those individuals' privacy. Uh, and indeed, when Google Street View was first uh, enabled in Australia, the first thing I did was go and uh, type in the street addresses of various friends and colleagues. Um, and lo and behold, at one particular friend's address, there in the front garden was my friend and his daughter. Now, Google has technology that automates the process of blurring out number plates and uh, people in um, Street View images, but it's not perfect, and there are, have been a lot of cases where individuals have been identifiable to those who know them, or number plates haven't been erased from cars, and so that enables people to place people at a certain address at a certain time, and that raises certain privacy issues. It does. I think we're going to have to redefine what privacy means, Chris, because you could have easily driven by your friend's house yourself and seen your friend and his daughter um, in the front garden, or somebody else could have done that. So they weren't actually within the privacy of their home. They were in public view. But it really, as soon as it goes on to street view camera, then people think of it differently. And I think the same is going to be true when you start talking about online privacy, which is the second issue that, that we're going to look at in the privacy Arena, and this is last year. Facebook made a change to its prior, to its terms of service, which really got a lot of people riled up, and they had to they had to revert it fairly quickly because what they said was that anything that you, you put on Facebook belongs to them. Uh, even if you delete your Facebook account, uh, the photos that you've uploaded, the chats, the conversations you've had, uh, belong to them, and they can 
they have ownership of it and they can do whatever they want with it. And that's a pretty broad-reaching and pretty draconian to a lot of people. And what Facebook said when the controversy um, erupted was that, no, what we really want to do is even if you delete your account, if you have a photo of yourself, some other user may have linked to it or made a comment on it, and we want to be able to allow that to to be persistent. Um, But... They seemed to have worded in such a way that it was much broader than that, and eventually they had to revert to their old terms of service because there's so much of an uproar about it. Yeah, yeah. And what is the current standing there, Gihan? If you delete your account, does it disappear forever along with all the images you've ever uploaded? That's what you're supposed to be able to do. And I've heard and I've read stories that say it's almost impossible to delete your Facebook account. Uh, I've never tried them. I'm about to because I have an old account that I'm no longer using that I've kept while I'm transferring everyone over to my new account. So I'm just about to do that and to see what happens. Um, but I, I think I'll be able to delete it quite easily because I don't have lots of photos that other people are commenting on. Um, but I think that the current status is back to where it was before, okay. which is theoretically you delete your account and everything goes. And Facebook has ownership of your material in order to be able to display it to other Facebook users, but they don't claim ownership of it in any sort of permanent sense. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, that provides us with a good segue to our next topic area, which is social networking. Um, and in particular, during Iran's elections last year, their protesters took to the street protesting over the conduct of the election and its outcome. So as a consequence, uh, our news media and online media were flooded with images taken from camera phones of various protests that took place in Iran, as well as the response of uh, the police and various, um, well, the, I guess the, the paramilitaries um, cracking down on protesters. So there was a lot of violence, uh, several Many people uh, were dragged off to prison and several people were killed. Um, So in spite of Iran's draconian internet censorship, it demonstrated that it's very difficult to, um, even with a a government like Iran's, to keep a lid on what takes place in your country um, with technology such as Twitter, with things like mobile uh, mobile telephones, with phone, with our cameras and video on them. So it it just demonstrates uh, perhaps... uh, highlights the point that you made in our last section, Gihan, about redefining privacy and redefining what's possible in the age of social networking. Yeah, I think it also raises another point, Chris, and this is from a, from a slightly different perspective. I think there's also a danger. So it was certainly not unbiased coverage, the sort of unbiased coverage you'd expect from a professional media organisation. So what you were getting was one side, and it could have been the opposition that lost, and their supporters who were blogging and twittering, and particularly twittering, and and it actually did influence what a lot of people were thinking about Iran. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. Uh, I think you're you're right, there's stuff that would otherwise have been censored was getting through, but equally there's a point that uh, there's also the point that maybe we were getting uh, a biased view that was far too biased uh, in the other direction as well. And I think it demonstrates the power of social networking to do good, but possibly also to, to influence people with just one, one viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, they're sometimes referred to as astroturfing, isn't it? In, in the commercial sense, so often uh, the purveyors of a product will go and, and submit positive reviews of their material. They'll use Twitter and other social networking websites to try and drum up what looks like grassroots support for a particular product, and it can also be used in a political sense and possibly was the case with the Iran elections. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the, the second controversy that we're going to talk about in the social networking area, if we were talking about a, a mass protest in this case, the, the second one is a single person protesting. This was happened quite a few years ago. And uh, when blogging was not as popular as it is now, so there wasn't the plethora of blogs that you see now. Um, this was in 2002, in fact. Heather Armstrong was fired for blogging about the company that she worked for and also for, t- for blogging certain things about her co-workers. And uh, some people think it's the first person ever to get fired for blogging. Uh, she's certainly one of the most, best, uh, the most well-known, and she's now using that controversy as, the, as, her now, as a source of income for, for herself. This is an interesting area where normally people feel that they have a right to vent about the, where they work and about the employer and maybe their co-workers, but they tend to vent in private. And blogging and others now, now more modern social media tools allow you to do it in public, even allow you to do it in semi-public forums like Facebook, where you can only your friends can um, see what you what you put out there. However. You, you're not always careful about who you choose as friends. So I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting controversy. There used to be a saying that uh, never pick an argument with somebody who buys ink by the barrel, uh, which was talking about the, uh, the disparity in power. But that is now shifting, and now individuals have, in some cases, as much power as certainly have enough power to influence what bigger organizations' uh, reputations are like. And I think that's a big shift in social networking, in social media, and it's, it's what the Internet has done, and we've either got to work out how to live with it or keep trying to stamp out uh, every little case, and I, I don't think that's possible. Yeah, I think you're right, Gihan. As you say, that happened in 2002, and I... And Forwarding to 2010, if every person who uh, blagged someone online at their workplace or even their employer were sacked, then there'd be a lot of us out of work. Yes, that's right. Maybe that's why we both work for ourselves. (laughs) Okay. Well, our final topic area, um, I've given the title of access. And in some countries, uh, it's common for ISPs to throttle the bandwidth of users who are accessing too much or too, ma- too many resources online. Uh, and in particular, that can be with regard to file sharing services where users are downloading large files such as movies or, or, um, or albums. Now, the ISPs, on the one hand, say that this is done in order to give good quality of service to all their customers. So you can imagine a situation where one user is downloading a movie, whereas another user is only, um, say, checking their emails, uh, then the, the movie is going to hog most of the bandwidth that the ISP provides versus uh, the person who's checking their email. And so in order to smooth out the quality of service to both, uh, the ISP throttles uh, the, the heavy user rather than the low user. But on the so other hand, sorry, go ahead, go on, Gihan. Well, I was going to ask you just to clarify that, Chris. Is that, is that a question of them throttling bandwidth within your limit? Because in Australia, typically you have a certain bandwidth limit. Or is it that they slow you down after you've exceeded your limit for the month? I think it's uh, the case that outside of Australia, most plans are unmetered. So there are no restrictions on how much you can download. So what the uh, ISPs have to resort to in that case is that they need to slow down the user's connection. So if they detect that they're using something like BitTorrent, one of the file sharing protocols, uh, then the the rate at which the file is downloaded is much slower than... So that's the throttling coming into effect. And as, as I say, I think that's... 
primarily a side effect of outside of Australia, most ISPs providing unmetered plans. Whereas in Australia, what we're used to is having metered plans. There's pretty much every plan has a quota, that is how much you can download per month. And once you reach that that quota, then you're throttled. So your your bandwidth speed, your um, connection speed will be dropped to a relatively low speed. Rather than broadband speeds, it'll be more like a dial-up speed. We tend not to have bandwidth throttling applied to people who are downloading too much or applied to people who are using things like file sharing services. In Australia, you have a cap. Once you exceed your cap, you're throttled. And that's not controversial in Australia because that's clearly um, specified in the plans. Uh, What's controversial elsewhere is that some users say, well, it's unfair if I'm paying a a certain amount per month for a particular service, then I should get, uh, I shouldn't have my bandwidth throttled. Whereas I think that if it's in the terms of service, it's not hidden or buried somewhere in the terms of service, then uh, they're the terms of service. If it says that file sharers or people who are using so much per day or per month are going to have their bandwidth throttled, then then they're the terms of service and you've signed up for those. Yeah, I think you're right, Chris. It's about transparency. If the terms of service are clear, and they usually are not, um, if the terms of service are clear, then there should be no question about it. And quite often they are down in the fine print and you see big billboard ads saying unlimited access and unlimited downloads. But if you look in the fine print, then you'll find that they have some sort of what they call generally call a fair use policy where they say, well, actually we said unlimited, but actually we're going to throttle you or we're going to give you a quota. So as long as it's clear, no question. Okay. Okay, so the last of our 10 controversies is one that happened fairly recently. This happened in about November last year. It's been, it's been called ClimateGate, where hackers got access to the, the University of East Anglia has a climate, uh, climate research unit, which provides a lot of the raw data to uh, climatologists and other scientists around the world who are talking about global warming and climate change, and hackers got into their into their database, hacked into it. Oh, well, there's some there's some question about whether it was actually hackers or whether it was a leak, and they got access to lots and lots of emails and documents, uh, a lot of which were not damning smoking gun evidence, but there certainly seemed to be a lot of examples of climate scientists trying to protect. The, the information and not allow it to be freely available to other scientists for their own analysis and research. And uh, a lot of the criticism was because the scientists who were protecting the information were generally in favor of the idea that there's anthropogenic global warming and they their papers and their research would support that, but they were unwilling to release that to other people who might be able to analyze the data and come up with either flaws in the original research or come up with their own research that contradicted that, as well as uh, talks of controversies about actual individual scientists. So there were complaints about scientists and even people having private emails among each other saying, we're going to try and discredit this person, or we're no longer going to publish to this journal because they seem to have this bent and they publish papers which disagree with us. So I, I think that even though it happened on the, on the internet, it's, I think it's a real blow to the whole idea of the way that science is done because now, you and I, Chris, both have a science background and we kind of believe in the scientific method, which is the, the whole idea that science works by finding flaws in previous research and finding new things. And I think in climate research and perhaps in the pharmaceutical industry as well, people who find flaws in research are not necessarily embraced and given the Nobel Prize. They're, in fact, they're, they're criticized, they lose 
lose funding, they they lose their reputation, they don't get invited to conferences, and I think it's a real problem. And the, the climate gate saga has yet to be resolved. There's uh, from the latest I've heard, there are a couple of uh, investigations going on. The head of the research of that unit at the university has resigned or stepped down, rather, I should say, uh, until the issue has been resolved. But it's still unresolved, and the scientific community just seems to have now forgotten about it, swept it under the carpet, apart from these investigations that are going on. And I think we should be looking at it a lot more seriously. Yeah, I think, it, as you say, it runs entirely counter to the scientific method. So the idea of uh, peer review is 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 shedding light on um, on research. So it, it, you have to have open data, so you need to make that data available, as well as the uh, processes and techniques that we use to analyse that raw data as well. So you need everything from the raw data itself, as well as the various um, analyses that were performed on that, and that needs to be published in peer-reviewed journals so that your peers can uh, try and emulate and reproduce your results uh, and critique them as well. So it's, as you say, it's very damning, uh, a damning case to uh, see scientists behaving in this way. But uh, on the topic of open data, something that we are starting to see as a consequence of the, of the internet is the, the whole open data movement. So we're starting to see governments opening up um, access to public service data. So we have the data.gov initiative in the United States, similar initiative in uh, the UK, whose name escapes me for the moment. And also in Australia, I think the ABS is going to, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is going to be releasing its data sets under the Creative Commons licences, which means that people can access, reuse, remix and uh, republish uh, those data sets if they want to. I think that's a very positive um, movement. And uh, one of the positives that came out of the whole Climate Gate uh, controversy was that the UK Met Office released their, um, their climate data sets. And as a consequence, a lot of the visualisation blogs that I follow published a whole lot of different visualisations of that data, as well as applying different analyses to them, which I found very revealing in terms of how important it is to uh, apply particular uh, statistical methods um, to show particular uh, meteorological phenomena. So the whole open data movement is a very positive development, and uh, we need more of it uh, and much less of what happened at the University of East Anglia. And let's hope that when we do this podcast again in 10 years' time, the number one internet controversy will be that the recording industry has decided to make all their data open and available for people Absolutely. to reuse and remix. <laughs> Maybe we should conduct that one on April Fool's Day, you have. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what we should do. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should say happy April Fool's Day. And, and as it turns out, this week is also just, we're recording this just before Easter. So if you're listening to it before Easter, happy Easter. And uh, before school holidays in most of Australia as well. So enjoy the school holidays to everyone listening and to you as well, Chris. Yes, best wishes to all our listeners and to you too, Gihan. And I'll speak with you in a couple of weeks. Yep, and remember focalpointpodcast.com. Thanks and bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.